This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In the over 20 years uh, of working and knowing Anique as a publisher, as an editor, as an innovator, as a photographer, as a pianist, and as a writer, there are two qualities that imbue absolutely everything uh, that she does. And that is unbridled joy and meticulousness of craft. You'll see it in her new book and we'll talk about it, but you see it in her book on the High Line, uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, she has a blog called liveinthehighline.com. And, and now reading her latest book, Chasing Chopin, A Musical Journey Across Three Centuries, Four Countries, and a Half Dozen Revolutions, we get to experience those qualities again. It shows up uh, in the meticulous of the research. I mean, the research alone uh, justifies wanting to uh, read this book, her capacity for storytelling, and above all, her joy for music and Chopin. You know, in the midst of what are really difficult times for so many people, uh, I finished this book and I just felt inspired. It just sort of like slightly rearranged my brain uh, in how I felt about just about everything. So um, it's a damn good reason to be reading this book. So with that, uh, Anique, welcome. Thank you so much. You have always been an inspiration to me through the many stages <laughs> of my very somewhat funky career. All the and, different uh, careers, right? Uh, but we've been together for a long time. No, yeah, know. we have. We have. So your book is anchored by Chopin's second piano sonata, uh, Opus 35, also known as the Funeral March. Also, uh, we know it is accompanying the demise of Sylvester the Cat, um, <laughs> the funeral procession of uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, so what is it about that composition that uh, motivated you to anchor uh, this book about Chopin? Well, I heard the, first heard the uh, sonata played in um, the late 1990s. I had just uh, started taking up the piano myself. So I was a young piano student and I was very um, in love with Chopin. My first goal as a budding uh, pianist was to be able to play all of his nocturnes, which of course was an insanely ambitious goal, but, um, but I'm, getting, I'm getting through some of them. Um, and when I heard, so I knew, I, knew, uh, I knew his music, I loved his music. And when I first heard um, this sonata, which I heard Michael Kimmelman, the, the New York Times, um, uh, critic playing at the at the Polish consulate in in New York, it it's I was really startled um, to first hear the funeral march, which of course I knew, as you say, it was you know it was the soundtrack of our lives. Our parents knew it from the funeral from the funeral of John F. Kennedy, um, and then so it was so iconic, and then it's so shockingly new at the same time because it contains this middle section that has been completely left out of the popular culture usage of the piece. And so what I realized was that Chopin was really telling an entirely different kind of story with this, with this piece. It's in three parts. It starts in a sort of minor dirge and then it goes into a, into a lovely major key nocturne and then it returns to this minor key dirge. And so it's just a much more complicated, interesting story. And, um, and it, and it turned out that it actually the story of the composition of this piece, which forms the narrative, the rough narrative spine of my book, um, you really can kind of unpack all the key issues of Chopin's life and, and, um, and music by looking at this one piece. So it was a great, it was a great uh, kind of way to hang a story. Um, and, and, you know, the other story that you tell is um, when you were in Chicago, and you were visiting a friend who had been ill with cancer and has since passed. You had time to kill, 
you were getting lost in Chicago and you went to a jazz club. And I think that that story for me just made me understand the magnitude of, of what that song could do. So tell us, tell us that story, including the, the sort of postscript to it. Well, I, I, I did. I flew out to Chicago to see my old, she was an author that I had worked with, Amy Krauss Rosenthal. Um, we did a book together called Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life. And then she wrote that wonderful piece in the New York Times, You May Want to Marry My Husband. Oh, yeah. She, he has a so book out now, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. 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 And so I, I, you know, we, I went there to say goodbye to her, which I had never done before. It was very, it was very hard. Um, and she was very sick at that time. And I left her and I, I walked on the Chicago High Line through into town and I had time to kill before taking the night train home to New York. And I stopped by this jazz club and in the middle of this very rollicking, jolly jazz tune, these guys started riffing on Chopin's Funeral March. And what surprised me about it was that they were smiling and they were throwing it to one another. Um, the piano threw it to the drums, who threw it to the, to the guitar. And it was really, um, I, they, were, they were so filled with joy. And, 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 I, and I found this piece just kept showing up in various ways. And I got on the, on the train going home and I started Googling it. And I found that the piece has been um, appropriated by virtually every type of musician um, since, it first, since it first became um, iconic back in the, really after Chopin died. Um, and so I just, kept unpacking and digging into the story to, to, to try to learn more about it. And, and what did you learn after you tracked down the, the member of the band? Well, I learned that his wife had died of the very same cancer that Amy mm -hmm. died of and had died just a few um, weeks um, after I, after I was there. And it was this, really kind of cosmic connection that we made, this guy and I. Um, and, you know, he, he, he sent me an email about how jazz musicians riff on tunes and, um, and, and what kind of improvisation was all about, which was also really interesting to me because Chopin was really the, known to be the greatest improviser of his day. And, and a lot of people who, musicologists and musicians and, and, and others, really believe that if Chopin were alive today, he would be a jazz musician because ah. his music was so, it was very innovative and um, the way he played, and it, when, you, when, you, when you play it, um, you, can, you really get that, that feeling, that line, that long line that he, um, that he often uses. So in fact, you know, just last week, there was a, there was a, um, a jazz festival in Tel Aviv, a Polish jazz festival. And on Wednesday, there was an entire, an entire uh, day devoted to a Chopin marathon where they had the top Israeli um, uh, uh, musicians, all different kinds of musicians. There was a wonderful guy playing an oud. There was a guitarist. There were pianists. There was a, um, a woman on a clarinet. And um, it was really, really glorious and wonderful to watch these musicians taking this music that's now, you know, hundreds of years old and completely reinventing it and, and making it their own. And that's what I had experienced in the jazz club. Um, of course, I was there to, you know, to sort of see the, the, the strange joy that these men, and these men were responding to their friend's loss. And that, that's what was going on. That's why there was joy, because it was about love. It was about, it was about the joy of love that binds friends together um, in the face of loss. And so it was, it was quite moving, particularly coming from Amy's house. In the way so, so Anique, you have, you have a, a website that you put together, which I would highly recommend to everyone, uh, which is whychopin.com. And you, uh, for those of you listening, uh, Anique actually gives you the piece that you should listen to while you're reading uh, the chapter or adds, to, I mean, the whole website's great, but the, the other thing that was striking is you have their like adaptations that range from Cab Calloway to Judy Garland to Perry Como. So was there, you know, as opposed to the other people that have, you've been in conversation with who know so much about music and I know 
close to nothing or maybe literally nothing about music. Is there something about Chopin's music that made it more uh, available to improvisation? Um, I think that one of the things that's, that, that's, that's distinctive about Chopin is that he wrote almost exclusively for the piano. And so there's one voice really in his, um, in his works. And he did write some orchestral works, but he, but, but very few. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's, it's an easy thing for a single musician to mm -hmm. take one piece um, and, and play the entire, the, capture the entire universe of that piece on one instrument. I think that's one, um, that's one way. Also, I think that his, his pieces, they're very, I mean, he was, he was criticized throughout his life for writing in these very short forms. Um, throughout his life, there was a pressure for him to write in the larger forms, to write uh, cantatas and operas and, um, and symphonies. And he really resisted that. He felt that everything that he needed to say, he could say with the piano. And, and, he, and he really favored simplicity. And he favored, um, and, and so I think that that's another reason why um, why it's why is why his works have 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 had such a such an impact um, is that he does um, he does capture this very um, you know very very beautiful very melodic but um, also very condensed and and um, and gorgeous music and, and one other thing about the website if if I may is that um, another thing that I tried to do there is to include examples of Chopin's works on um, a variety of different kinds of pianos because a part of, an important part of the book, and we're gonna see this in a, in a little bit in, the, in a video, um, an important part of the book is the story of the development of the piano, which was so important to Chopin and other, and other artists of the, that period in the 19th century. And so I've tried to include examples um, of, of works played on pianos that were available to him during the time that he worked because that's so important to the story. Yeah, so Anique, before we go on to talk about the impact of those pianos, uh, we're gonna do the technological feat um, of Anique sharing her screen uh, to play this video. So go Anique. Yeah, so I'm gonna play, the video I'm gonna play is, uh, it's a very short video, it's three minutes. It's gonna give you the sense of the funeral march, the part that you know, the famous dirge, and the, quick the modulation into the related major key um, that I found so surprising when I first heard it. The pianist is a young young guy called Eric Clark. He was the only American to compete in the first um, Chopin competition on period instruments in Warsaw in 2018. So I'm now going to share my screen and play this um, this short clip.
Mm. I love that. Um, Geek, that's beautiful. I love that clip. It, it does cut off rather quickly, but it, um, one of the things I love is that you see the, the sort of the sense of wonder. In yeah, that. on his face. That. And you, you know, this was really something very new, what Chopin was doing. It had not been done before, um, taking a funeral march and um, mixing it up this way. There's three parts of it. The, the funeral march returns after that lovely, after that lovely nocturne like, like song that comes in the middle. Um, but it really was a, um, a, a, quite, a quite unusual gesture that he was doing musically. And Nick, one of the things that struck me as I've, I've spent the last three or four days listening to Chopin more than I probably collectively have in my life, or maybe, is if I try to disconnect the caricature of the piece as the funeral march, it didn't really feel so funeral-like in its totality. I mean, was it, was it called the funeral march right away? Would, did Chopin think of it as a funeral march? Well, it's interesting. This was one of the great surprises that I, that I made in the course of my research, is that Chopin was an inveterate reviser. And on one of the last versions of the piece that he sent to his publisher, he actually ran his pen through the word funèbre or, or funeral in French, um, leaving one of the top Chopin scholars, Jeffrey Kalberg, who's written about this a lot, to wonder if the world's most famous funeral march is indeed a funeral march. Right. And, you know, and I, I, I write about why I, why I think he did that and sort of what my, my theory is. Um, of course, no one completely knows because Chopin didn't leave a, a real written record. He had, mm -hmm. but really he left his music. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's uh, he, he left it at Marsh. So, and, and there are, there are um, elements of the classic um, funeral march, there are dynamic elements and and sort of what what uh, musicologists call a grief motif that you find in in virtually all funeral marches. So the hallmarks of of, of the funeral march are there in that piece. Um, but he was doing something. He was telling a very different kind of story with it, and and I found that to be really um, really moving. Actually, um, the, the the idea that that a that a piece about <clears throat> death and loss would be infused with optimism and beauty, that that, that that feels right to me, that that's the way that we, um, you know, that we, that we feel about people we love. Um, there is both joy and sorrow come, that come together. And that is very much present in that, in that piece. Well, you know, that reminds me, I think you, you mentioned this in the book, but you quote Queen Elizabeth, uh, that grief is the price we pay uh, for love. And it occurred to me that that juxtaposition, that um, contrast, that sort of jarring alignment or lack of alignment are a theme of both his music and his life. Um, yeah. is, is, and because in listening to his music, it was almost like a salve. I mean, it was a little bit, I, I think that was part of what I found myself so struck about reading, reading the book too. Is, is that, a, is, would you agree with that? Is that, do you think it is representative of his life and his music, that kind of the grief and the love, the, the, the give and the take? I think, you know, one thing that's true about about Chopin is that he, he he's he's often his music is thought of as being very sentimental and for the ladies and um, and and sort of light and there's really an enormous amount of violence and dissonance in his music mm -hmm. and that combines though with very I mean I I talk a little bit in the book about um, about another piece he wrote a scherzo which he wrote at really the lowest point in his life after he had left Poland and he would never return home again and. It's this howling, um, really um, raging beginning to this piece, and then it stops in the middle. And there's a and he he does a riff on a traditional Polish Christmas song, and then he returns it back to this right. howling. And and that I think that is a I think that is a hallmark of his style. I think you know his 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 it, it's you don't want to talk too much in 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 prescriptive terms about about composers and and read too much into of their biography into their work, but it is true that for his entire life, really since he was a teenager, 
mortality was a very real thing for him. He was sick his entire life. His beloved younger sister, Amelia, died of tuberculosis at the age of 14. He saw it up close. Um, and yet when you read, like, for instance, um, Alan Walker, the great, the great uh, Chopin musicologist, wrote a wonderful biography of Chopin that came out a year or so ago. And one of the things that really comes across in that book that came across most powerfully for me um, was how happy his childhood was and how engaged his, you know, with his family and his friends. He was very funny. He had an enormously um, sort of wicked and spry sense of humor. So these two things really, really coexist in both his music and in his life. Yeah. And I, and, and I think, you know, again, that's, and I think now, you know, that, that, that we're in the middle of a, of a, of a pandemic. And this was something also that Chopin knew. Um, there were many, there were, there were cholera epidemics um, throughout Europe during that period. There was the tuberculosis epidemic, of course, which he suffered from. Um, and so I think this work has a, his music has, has resonated for me in a, in a new way during this period. Mm. Because I understood a little more, you know, kind of what it might've been like for him to be living with this. Yeah, and so it, it's been said that uh, through Chopin's music, he imparted Poland. And so before we talk about that, because he self-exiled when he was 20, remind us about the state of Poland during Chopin's lifetime. And, and most particularly, um, the part of Poland's history that gets lost. I mean, we tend to think of it as like a ping pong ball of Europe. I mean, basically from the late 1700s until World War I, it, it almost didn't exist or it was captive by the Prussians and the Russians and um, the Germans. Yeah. No. Austrians. Austria, um, Austria. Um, and so remind us of all of that, because that very much informed Chopin's life. Yeah, it, it really, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I started researching this book is I just fell in love with the story of Poland. It's an absolutely... Yeah, I did too. Moving, poignant, and, and it's still very much, I mean, the people, people in Poland today, like for instance, um, during the, and the, the every five year Chopin competition, the entire country shuts down and they all listen to Chopin. Chopin is really sort of the voice of, um, of Poland in, um, in, in, in Poland and, and around the, you know, around the world. There's it, something interesting that Norman Davis, who was the great historian, great English language historian of Poland, um, said recently in an interview that the Polish language isn't really known that much around the world. People don't study Polish the way we study French and Spanish and Chinese. Um, and so in a way, Chopin is really the, the first Polish voice mm -hmm. that's audible in the world. And, and he really, um, really captures in his music that thing that we were talking about before, that mingled quality, those juxtapositions, those contrasts. Um, Poland is... Um, a country that, as, as you said, I mean, it was since the, the, the Middle Ages, it was being attacked by hordes of, um, of, of all different kinds of tribes and different countries. And in the, um, in, in the late 1700s, it was partitioned three times before ultimately being literally wiped off, removed from the map of Europe. Um, it was the, speaking the name of Poland was was became um, be, became banned. Um, and it was banned. Yeah, you weren't you were it really you were not supposed to speak about Poland um, during this time. Um, and it was it was in this um, when when Chopin left in he was twenty and he went off to 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 have a sojourn of music throughout Europe and an uprising broke out, so a political uprising in Warsaw. And it prohibited his return. Um, and his friends said to him, you know, don't come back, write great music, write the music for Poland. And, and so that's really what he, what he was preoccupied with doing. He was enormously innovative and, and musicologists talk about this. And I try to talk in the book a little bit about this without getting too weedy um, into, the, into the, the technical part of it. But it's, it's, very, um, it, it's very clear how he took the old Polish forms and kind of renovated them and infused a new kind of um, life, which, which is what I, I heard in the jazz um, Polish yeah. uh, Chopin Marathon. Um, but there is this sort of, um, you know, this mingled sense of, of 
constantly being under the thumb of the Russians and the Prussians and the Austrians, this troika of, um, of sort of new power in Europe at that time, who kept re-carving up Poland for, them, for themselves. And um, even, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the current uh, president of Poland in 2018, when they were celebrating the return of uh, the, the, two, the, the 100th anniversary of the return of Poland to the map of Europe, um, Andrzej Duda said, you know, without Chopin, I don't think that Poland would have returned to the, to the map of Europe. So, I mean, even today in, mm. in, in political terms, his music is, is considered very much at the, you know, in the, the heart and soul of what it means to be a Pole and how you want expresses oneself as a Pole. Yeah, and so talking, you know, it made me want to read more because I think I'm, I'm uh, as uh, vulnerable to the kind of short story about Poland as, and I've read a fair amount about Europe, but then you just forget about Poland. <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, that makes me sound like an idiot, but it's... No, no it doesn't. I think it's, uh, it's... I mean, I tried to to really um, sort of do a, a very short uh, history through Chopin, through the story. You did a good job. You did a good job. It's very difficult. But... So thinking about renovating, uh, one of the things that was striking, so even someone who doesn't know that much about Chopin knows that he had a almost 10 year affair with George Sand. And when I think about um, resurrecting, you know, Chopin had a um, sort of shortcut reputation as being sort of a snob and a dandy. And uh, George Sand had a reputation as being cigar smoking, scandalous, promiscuous. And yet I came away from reading the book, uh, thinking about each of them in quite a different way. Did you set out to do that? Was that just a byproduct of your research? No, I didn't set out to do it. I, I, it was really another of the, of the surprises to me that, um, that the, the sort of the cliche that I had grown up with about both of them was really, I mean, you know, all of those things that you said about Chopin are in the literature, that he was a dandy, that he didn't read, that he was short-tempered, that he, um, you know, wrote sentimental music, all, all of those things are there. But what I was really, um, it's, I mean, I'll just talk about sort of one, one aspect. Um, I already mentioned that he, 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 he resisted this intense pressure on him to um, write in these larger forms. And he went against those, everybody that was urging him to do that and wrote the, from his heart what he felt he needed to say. Um, but he was also, as a teacher, he was an extraordinarily, I think, generous um, man. He was exacting and it was really important to him that his students would understand precisely the technique to play his works as they were intended to be played. He always had a metronome on the piano. He was very exacting, but he also told them that they should play it the way, he said to one student, play it like no one's ever played it before or ever mm -hmm. will again. He said to another student, I give you complete license, complete license when you're sitting here at the keyboard to be yourself. Um, he was really pre preoccupied with enabling his students. And he was very, he wrote for amateurs. You know, that's another thing that's really sort of important to remember about Chopin was that he was, he was very concerned with um, the amateur pianist. And, and this was a time when pianos were popping up in everybody's living rooms. Um, and, and, and George Sand too, I, you know, in their relationship, what I, what I kept hearing as I traveled around to Spain where they spent a very consequential um, uh, several months together. And then in, in central France where she had a house. Um, I, I kept hearing this conversation between two artists that mm -hmm. I found really fascinating. And they were really, really different. They could not have been more different. But Sand had a, she had a very, very difficult, um, complicated childhood and um, lots of heartbreak and, and anxiety. And um, she became a really independent person who saw a kind of duty in friendship and her her metier was to enable other artists to be able to achieve their own great work so she structured her household in a way that would enable 
um, would enable everyone who came into her orbit to do good work. And I, I found that really, um, really inspiring. So along with the cliches about sand, there's this other, she also wrote very innovative. I write about this, this book that she wrote called Gabriel, which is about what today we might call a transgendered person. Um, she was way ahead of her time. And, um, and, and really a very um, an innovative and, a, and, a, and also an intellectually generous person, if a very complicated and vexing and enervating woman, I think. Well, because it was the other piece, you know, the, uh, uh, if I found a theme uh, in the book, it was about the, the, um, the, um, the wonderful being matched by the problematic. And so when I, when I read about their relationship, it seemed to me that she was both his muse and then ultimately uh, somewhat fatal, if not literally, figuratively, um, to his work. Is, is that a fair way of describing their relationship? Fatal to his work, meaning that, that I'm not sure I understand that. That he got sick. <laughs> oh, well. He brings him yeah. to Mallorca, which is not good for his. Yeah. I mean, they, they went to Mallorca believing they were going into paradise. That it was going to be an artist's paradise. That it was going to be a place <laughs> where they would stay for several years. San brought her two young children. Um, at first, it was very beautiful. And there are these letters that talk about how gorgeous the pomegranate trees are. And, and he was wildly productive there, right? Very and they both did some of their best work there. Yeah. Um, but it turned, it turned very, very scary very quickly. And there were a lot of issues. They, they, were, they were looked down upon um, with great suspicion by the locals because not only because of his illness, which they were terrified of, but also because they were this, they were this unmarried couple with two unruly children living in a very Catholic country. They didn't speak the language. They didn't like the food. It was, it was, a, it was a very complicated um, time, but also filled with, you know, there was a line in her, Jorsen wrote what I consider to be the world's most hostile travel book ever about Mallorca. It's a <laughs> wonderful and very short book. Um, but she, there was this one line in there where she talked about how it was a, a landscape of severity and grace, melancholy and magnificence. Mm. And that's what made me just say, okay, that's where I've got to go first. Because if you, if you need, if you were looking for a, you know, it's eight word description of Chopin's work in general, that would be it. And also that that's a very perfect description of the time that they spent in Mallorca. So again, these, you know, these juxtapositions, these contrasts, these, these really. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was another thing that really. I love that sentence. Yeah. That's she was, really. She was a wonderful writer. She was very valuable and she probably wrote too many words, but she, she had, some of her work is absolutely inspiring and, and way, again, you know, I, I, I sometimes wondered when I was reading um, Gabriel, if there would have been an Orlando, you know, by Virginia Woolf without George Sand. I think it's ah. really, I think she really, she really was very ahead of her time and really has never gotten, she was very famous. She was enormously best-selling author but I'm not sure she ever really has quite gotten the, the credit she deserved for yeah. um, the breadth of her work and, and also a lot me, of the heart work. Yeah. It makes me want to go back and uh, read her work. Yeah. But speaking of uh, the different places they went, I was very struck by your travels. I mean, I considered another part of the book to be a travelogue of all the, so you literally went to um, most of the places that Chopin was during the three years he took to write uh, the funeral march. Did you find it critical to go to do that? Which, which one of the places you went to became revelatory in an unexpected way? And which place did you just love on its own? Well, you know, for me, and you mentioned my Highland book before, I mean, the, the, my background as a writer is as a writer of, about place and landscape. And it's really the way I, um, I kind of engage with history is through place um, and through layers of landscape. And so going to those places was really important for all kinds of reasons. I, I, you know, one of the, one of the really um, resonant moments for me was when I was in Sands uh, estate in Noir in central France. And 
her grandmother was this very aristocratic woman. She was very, very difficult, and she was sort of horrible. To San San's father died very violently in a horseback riding accident when she was very young, and her brother died right afterwards, a few days afterwards. And her grandmother basically paid off her mother to stay in Paris and let the grandmother raise little Aurora, she was known, in Noir. The grandmother was very aristocratic. She favored, um, you know, sort of formal French gardens. And so when you go there, you see these the alleys and the and the roses and this very kind of formal, old-fashioned French garden. But what Sand loved about it, Aurora, little Aurora, was the forest that abutted the garden. And she would spend many, many hours of every day wandering in this forest landscape where nobody else would go. And she built a, she created an imaginary friend, um, a, a kind of sexless god she called Corambe, and she would go every day and she would create um, a little altar and she would bring it gifts and lay um, little treasures at its feet. And today, the, the people who run the estate, um, they engaged an artist who created a statue of Corambe, her own, you know. Their, and, and, their iteration. Right, yeah, her iteration right there in the middle of the forest. And you just kind of stumble upon it. You can come upon it from various different paths, but it's always a surprise when you do. And I, I, it, it, it really, um, you know, we, we, we live in a, in a, in a time where um, we've preserved a lot of historic places and we get modern artists to come in and make representations in those, in those places. And I, I find that really wonderful. One, one of the things I love about the High Line is the, is the art program there. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it is, you, you, you come upon surprises that are not, this was a modern surprise in an, in an old landscape, um, but it was really true to sand spirit. Um, so yeah. stuff like that you, you, you get when you, um, you know, when you, when you, when you travel around and there were, I had a lot of experiences like that where I just, I, I, I understood some, something about their, their time together. Of course, these landscapes are really different. Everything is so different. So From it's, then. It's always, yeah, it's always leaps of imagination. But I find, I find story in landscape. And, and in this book, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I took the, the story of a piece of music and kind of unpacked it the way I would a landscape. Um, and, um, and so that's just my, my way of kind of getting in to a subject. Yeah, I loved, I loved that, that integration about learning about these places as it was informing your story. And, you know, Anika, as I listen to you and I see your piano uh, <laughs> in the background, I've heard you, so what we met in the early 90s and you became a, a student of piano. And I think about all the conversations we've had over the years. And whenever you talk about uh, playing the piano or being with your um, piano, is piano teacher a fair, is there yeah. a fancier word? Um, there is sort of a dreamy uh, look that comes across your face whenever, even if it's like a little snippet uh, that you're talking about in playing the piano. What What is playing the piano for you? Well, for me, you know, you, you, when, when we met, I had actually just, and you know, my, my, my wonderful partner, um, very well, um, yes. who gave me the world's greatest present for Valentine's day, which was then the state of the art, um, keyboard. And I started taking piano lessons. And when I first began my teacher, Rafael Cortez, who I still study with today, we're doing zoom lessons, but, um, we've been working together for 25 years or maybe even a little bit more. One of the first things he said to me is, look, you know, you're going you're gonna to confront every issue of your life at this instrument. So it's going to be like therapy in, in, in a sense. And he was right. You really do. It's a, for me, it's, a, it's kind of a form of meditation. I play every day, usually in the morning. Um, and I play for myself. I don't really play for other people. There's a wonderful mm -hmm. thing that Mitsuko Ishida said. Uh, a New York Times reporter got her during the early days of the pandemic and asked her what it was like. You can't have an audience. She says, you know what? I don't really need an audience. I love to be able to play badly by myself. And I, I just thought yeah. that was so wonderful. It's like, that's what it, but you do, you, 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 you confront all your strengths and all your weaknesses. You understand the way you learn, the way you fail to learn, the mistakes that you make. Um, but there's also a way in which you can 
find your own voice, what, what Chopin wanted his own students to, to, to be able to do. Um, and, and, and it's really to be able to make something beautiful is, 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 just, um, is just a great yeah. gift. It's very hard. Um, studying music and learning the piano is very hard. And I'll yeah. always be an amateur and I'll always be working hard as hell to get better at it. But it's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it, 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 it makes, it may, you know, my son often teases me because I say, oh yeah, when I retire, I'm going to study the piano. And he goes, you know, mom, you're kind of, <laughs> you might want to get going. <laughs> you might want to get going on this. But speaking about performing, there's a couple of things I want to make sure we squeeze in as this time is uh, quickly uh, running out is, you know, you have, uh, said that Chopin did not particularly like performing. And his, um, his biggest commitment was to teaching and his uh, performances tended to be in salons, in smaller spaces. And the motivation then was to go to the bigger venue, the pianos, you know, which we didn't even get to, allowed the music to resonate in in bigger halls share with us why you think that um that instinct of his is is actually a precursor and informative to uh today well this was one of the things that i really came to admire and even love about him that at this period and this was a it was an amazing period in the 1830s in paris when he arrived it was there was the early days of the industrial revolution Piano factories were, were popping up all over Europe. There were something like 90 of them in France. And um, piano, and every nationality, we didn't get to this at all, but this is an important part of the story. Every, every piano, every nationality had its own kind of sound. Um, countries had their own sounds that they expressed through pianos. Um, the opera hall, the, the, the concert halls were getting bigger. The um, newspapers were being printed on these new printing presses that were coming out. And it was an age of celebrity. And so there were piano duels, Liszt versus Talberg. They were advertised in newspapers. It was a, it was a time when the artist, when the, when the pianist was becoming an enormous celebrity. And that was considered to be a really, um, a really desirable thing. And Chopin, again, under enormous pressure to give concerts, really just ultimately walked away from the concert stage. He gave something like 30 concerts during his entire, um, his entire career. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's hard to, to create a, par a parallel with today, but if you think about, um, you know, what it would be like for Lang Lang, who's one of the most famous, um, you know, concert pianists today, just deciding, I'm going to walk away, I'm not going to do this. That would just never happen. I mean, we live in a time mm -hmm. when social media and, and, and records and, and, and publicity and all of that is a great driver. Well, it was in his day too. So it's not that, it's not that different. Um, his act, his gesture of walking away was a gesture of self-will, of self-understanding, um, of artistic, um, great artistic authenticity. And, and I think it was consequential and, and really admirable. So I, I particularly, I mean, I think that there are things that he would really recognize actually about this moment. Um, you know, the, the social revolutions, the political revolutions, the nationalism, the uprising, the pandemic, um, and of course the culture of celebrity that has become so baked into our, um, into our culture was very much present during his. And he showed enormous personal uh, you know, authenticity in, in just saying, you know, I want to create a world of my own. I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I know how to speak to the, the people that I need to speak to as a musician. You know, you, you knew you loved his work. Did you end up liking him more than you thought you might? I did. I really did. I found him to be really an inspiring figure. Um, I mean, he's just all the stuff that you, you know, the, 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 the negative stuff. Yes. I, you know, I, I, I encountered that um, as everyone who reads about Chopin does. But I really found a different figure. I found, I found somebody who um, really had a lot to say to me personally as somebody who cares about making music, who cares about trying to achieve beauty without histrionics. Um, I mean, that's another thing my, my piano teacher, you know, really worked with me on. It's very hard to play really beautiful music and not, you know, physically. Like when you saw Eric Clark playing, there, there is this... Um, 
uh, and in the next video, if we get to that, you'll see, see it even in this, in this police officer. There's a kind of um, stature that really great artists are able to achieve. Mm. Um, that's really hard. And, and, and that was an, another thing that Chopin really, really hammered into his students. Yeah. Don't become histrionic. Don't, don't be, you know, all over the place. Um, and so, Anique, before we close with the with this um, story and um, uh, the video, what what do you hope we as readers take away from the book? Well, you know, for me, I think um, the inspiration that that both for both from both Sand and Chopin of being really independent artists, being able to uh, find their own voice in cultures that put enormous demands on well, artists of every kind. I mean, I also write in the book about Eugène Delacroix, a fascinating painter who was a great friend of Chopin and Sand. Um, and he too was going against genres. He too was reinventing forms and going against the academy. And so I think that you know, at a time, and, and another theme of the book is the, the way that pianos in those days had different sounds from every country. Today, we have a, we're used to a very homogenous sound. Yeah. Like the or the Yamaha, whatever. Um, I, I think there's, there's, a great, um, there's a great message here about authenticity and independence and what it takes to, yeah. to find your own voice. Um, and it was as hard then as it is today. You know, it reminds me, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this quote, but one of my favorite quotes is from Emerson's Self-Reliance, where he talks about it's easy in the isolation of being alone to um, heed one's mind, and it's difficult in the midst of the crowd to retain the wisdom of that solitude. So I'm sure somebody will very quickly correct the language, but it is interesting that how applicable it is to what you're talking about with Chopin. I know that quote, um, and and I and you I probably think you know just, better than me. No, I, I don't. But I, I I think you just hit it right on the head, and I think you 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 speak for everyone who loves Chopin's work, whether it's a concert pianist or somebody like André Gide, the great French poet, mm -hmm. or De, or or Hofstadter. Um, the, the physicist, um, people who have spent a lifetime in solitude trying to understand this, this music and get closer to it and, and, and express themselves through it. And it is, it is the great gift, really, of, of Chopin, that, that, that single where we started this conversation, just that piano. So I can improvise, mm -hmm. I can do what I, I can say what I need to say, just me and that instrument. There's something so powerful about that relationship and, um, and, and that is a theme that runs through this story. And, yeah. um, and I think you're, you're quite right about, about Emerson. Okay, so let's close. There's a wonderful story at the end of the book about an older, I think he's 90-something-year-old pensioner whose garden had been ravaged. He calls the police. And tell us the story of what happens uh, when the policeman comes to investigate. Now, this is the last story I tell in the book, and it's, it's the last story of Chopin kind of showing up in a surprising way in, in, in modern life. And so, as you say, this was a 93-year-old man. Um, his wife had just died, and, so, um, his, and his garden had been ransacked by hoodlums, and the police were checking up on him. And so the officer walks into the house to see how he's doing and he's sort of seeming very sad and, and, the, and the cop notices a little a piano in the, on the side of the room and there's a, a score on it. And he says, well, that's funny. That was my grandma's favorite. I played that piece for her every day until she died or until my, first until my back gave out and then she, she eventually died. So I'm gonna share my screen again. Um, and this is very short, it's 30 seconds, um, just a little bit of this really quite um, surprising um, moment where- We need the screen, Anita. Yeah, here we go. I know, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm trying to overcome my- <laughs> Okay. Okay, here we go.
So that's just um, another yeah. lovely, lovely moment of, um, of Chopin bringing joy to a man who really yeah. had a rough so Anik, uh, we've we plum run out of time. Um, we have been talking with Anik Lafarge, the author of Chasing Chopin. Uh, if you can see it, and you know, I want to. There's a lot we didn't get to. It's the it's it's really a jewel of a book, Anik. and I I can't even communicate how much you cover in this little book between history and music and travel and your life. It's just, not that I would expect any less from you, darling, but how nice to see it all materialized in this wonderful book. Thank you so much for writing it and thanks for joining us tonight. It's a great, great blessing on me to be able to be with you. Thanks to everybody for joining us and have a Support your local bookseller, everybody. Yeah, buy the book. Stay safe. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.